0: Our guest today is Professor Lucas Morell. He is the John K. Boardman, Jr. Professor of Politics at Washington and Lee University, former president of the Abraham Lincoln Institute, and he currently serves on the U.S. Semi-Quincentennial Commission, which will plan activities to commemorate the 250th anniversary of the founding of the United States of America. He joins Bill McClay as the second member of this commission to appear on the show, which must be, I think, a podcast record. Uh, He is a former visiting fellow of the James Madison program, and it is a pleasure to have him with us today to discuss his wonderful new book, Lincoln and the American Founding. Lucas Morell, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thanks for inviting me, Nino. Uh, Now, before we turn to Lincoln and the American Founding, I thought we'd discuss one of Lincoln's contemporaries, Robert E. Lee. As I mentioned, uh, you teach at Washington and Lee University, which is at risk of soon being known only as Ampersand University. uh, Both Washington and Lee fallen out of uh, favor. Now, you recently wrote an article explaining why, in your view, Lee should remain a namesake of the school. Tell us a little bit about this controversy, maybe why you think it's returned with such fervor recently, and why you think it would be a mistake for Washington and Lee to remove Lee's name from the doors
1: yeah big question a lot of parts let's see what i can do with that Um, of course right now everybody is thinking about uh, doing right by a long beleaguered racial minority of this country black american citizens and so the motive uh, of doing what we can to be truly an inclusive and fair society as was spelled out at least as i understand it in the declaration of independence what lincoln called giving all men a fair chance um you know this is all to the good in terms of our motives and so our university, whose two namesakes are slaveholders, uh, but one who established this nation, the, the chief indispensable man in establishing it, George Washington, and one who attempted for four years to try to destroy it, Robert E. Lee, uh, now the, you know, the patron saint of the lost cause. Um, <clears throat> they are the, the, the namesakes of my university. And uh, it's Lee right now who's in the sights because Confederates are in the crosshairs. Uh, this all derived from... Uh, long-standing concerns about what to do with Confederate monuments and what if the monument is actually a recumbent statue of Lee uh, which sits above uh, the Lee crypt in the Lee Chapel at Washington (laughs) and Lee University in Lexington Virginia where Stonewall Jackson his right-hand man is also buried all but his uh, left arm Um, so faculty for a while have been trying to have the uh, trustees of the university remove at least Lee from the name. And there are a good number who also want to remove Washington for that matter. So you weren't, you're only tongue in cheek or half, half joking when you said we'll soon be known as Ampersand University. <laughs> four out of five faculty, minimum. Four out of five faculty uh, want Lee's name removed. They haven't come up with an alternative. What will we be called? Will we try to stay with W and L? Uh, and I was uh, the only faculty member at our meeting to give a principled reason why I thought we should hold on to uh, Lee. And I always begin my remarks by saying, look, I'm a Lincoln scholar uh, and my, my Twitter handle is Lincoln Douglas with two S's. So Frederick Douglass is a hero of mine as well, uh, but principally Lincoln. Uh, I believe Lincoln, uh, I believe Lee was a traitor. I believe he committed treason when he decided to fight, as he understood it, on behalf of Virginia uh, and against what he believed was a, an invasion by uh, the United States. Uh, but the reason I believe he should remain a namesake is because of his contribution to the university at a pivotal time in its history. Both namesakes made signal contributions to the university that essentially not only kept us afloat, but set the course for what I consider to be our future um, uh, elite status. Uh, You know, we're ranked number 10 in the US News and World Report in in terms of national liberal arts colleges, Uh, but for Washington and but for Lee, I would not have my current job. So for me, it's a simple matter of gratitude. I'm not grateful that he tried to destroy a country that I believe uh, Lincoln rightly tried to defend, even to the point of war, a war of self-defense, as he understood it. So I don't defend Lee uh, uh, for what he did wrong. I defend him for what he did right at a moment in our nation's history, not just in our college's history, but in a moment in our nation's history where he could have given how important he was at the end of the war, there was nobody who stood taller in the South than Robert E. Lee, right. okay? Uh, he could have made things a lot worse, could have encouraged guerrilla warfare, encouraged the Klan. He could have been uh, a break on reconciliation. Um, he was against, uh, and instead of those things, he chose to become a president of, frankly, a podunk boys' school, which maybe had 50 students. Hmm. Uh, at the time. Both you know l and U- University of Virginia, VMI, Virginia Military Institute, these colleges were ravaged during the war. And so they were all struggling to try to stay afloat. Lee taking over um, what was known as Washington College saved the college. And as an op-ed in the, rich, uh, the uh, Richmond Times Dispatch, I lay out all the re- reasons why Lee was uh, a, a very pivotal player in transforming the college putting it on a sound financial basis, um, recruiting students from both North and South, um, garnering the respect of the New York Times, uh, Harry Beecher Stowe's father, the most famous preacher in the country at the time, uh, Henry Ward Beecher. Um, and so Lee was one who made public his attempt in his way. He's, I'm not saying he's the paragon of, rec- of reconciliation in the 1860s, but for the last five years of his life, he gave his life to submitting to federal authority, And a very public example of that, when uh, soldiers and and fellow rank and file members would come to him and say, What can we do? What can we do? And Lee said, We lost. Hmm. We've got to move forward. We've got to build um, the South. We have to build Virginia. And we have to do it in a peaceful, civil, uh, and loyal way. We are now, you know, we're Americans. We lost our fight. And so, for all those reasons, I think um, we should appreciate Lee. I don't think that these reasons exonerate. His fight for a country um, or an attempt at a southern independent nation that was devoted to white supremacy and slavery, uh, and again dissolving the union—I don't, I don't, I don't see his actions as president as a redeeming thing for his past. That's a separate conversation. What I am saying is, it is the height of ingratitude for those of us who gain our employment uh, and our and our our income um, um, from being employed at, at the university. And all of a sudden now thinking that, that um, you know, Leeds' name doesn't deserve to be on the mass set. I, I disagree for those reasons. I think we need to be grateful for what these people did in the past, not for everything uh, that they did, sins of omission or commission, but I think he was a very pivotal and unifying person who could have been very destructive and divisive. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, well, I think it's a very convincing case actually that you make for keeping his name on the university. Uh, yeah. But what about these Confederate memorials, uh, statues, streets, the Confederate flag more generally? How do you think I, about that?
1: My position has been clear from the beginning, and I don't think it's uh, uh, really hard to understand. The reason you put up a statue is the reason you take one down. And so, if in the past a city government or state decided to put the stars and bars in the flag or put up monuments, deliberately to intimidate black people and say, well, we may have lost the war, but we still are winning the peace. Um, uh, I think if those reasons no longer exist, and I don't believe they do, the state of Georgia and Mississippi, I think it's those two states, but if a state has any fealty symbolically to a destructive element in our nation's past and can no longer represent all of its citizens, I think they have to act with integrity and change those things. And so if those monuments, if those flags, if buildings are, uh, uh, represent the public and are supported by tax dollars, if the public, through a deliberative process, no longer believes in the values that those um, images and names represent, then they should take them down. But they should be the process this should be the, the process of deliberation, like they did in Boston, removing the Freedmen's Memorial, the copy. Right of the Lincoln and, and freed slave, uh, escaped slave, um, Archer Alexander, uh, Boston at least did it the right way, even though I don't agree with what they did, I agree with the process.
0: Sure.
1: So the process should be one that is in, uh, a reflection of the consent of the governed, which is not mob rule and you know, politics by megaphone. No, it should be the process of informed consent and reasons leading to a deliberative decision and choice uh and so uh again i mean this one's easy for me uh which statues should stay up you know statues on battlefields i mean they're there for a reason robert e. lee there's a massive pro- arguably the you know one of the largest statues at the gettysburg battlefield is one of lee on a huge pedestal uh right at the at the beginning of what was known as pickett's charge pickett Pettigrew's charge right below that slope which led to the slaughter they were sitting ducks on that third day um, massive statue of lee at the battlefield of Gettysburg. that statue is telling a his a, a story it is it is contributing a chapter to our nation's history that people go to the battlefield to learn you don't take that statue down yeah. okay that's ridiculous you don't have to bury all of these things in a history book people learn not just through reading but visually viscerally and so by t- by going to these battlefields and i, and I would include also cemeteries uh, and so Uh, For me, the bigger deal is names, monuments, images, like on flags, that are supposed to represent an entire community. If it clearly doesn't, you know, the lost lost cause does not represent the entire community. Yeah, the community says, good grief, we still have that up there. Let's remove it. That makes perfect sense to me. Sure.
0: Yeah. Uh, And I'll I'll put in the show notes that article you wrote for the Richmond Times Dispatch, and I encourage listeners uh, to read that. It is a very compelling argument. And that's turned out to Lincoln and the American founding. Right uh, Now, Lincoln, of course, had very little formal education. As you know, he once describes his education in one word, defective. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where did he get access to the founding?
1: Um, uh- he got access to the founding beginning, he even tells us, when on his, on his way to uh, his inauguration. He read Parson Weems, I'll have to put this in scare quotes, biography <laughs> uh, of, um, the man was neither a Parson nor a, 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 a true biographer. Um, he was a moral suasionist. Uh, Lincoln read Parson Weems' biography when he was a kid. And he told us that uh, at Trenton, New Jersey, the capital of New Jersey, on, the, on his way to his inauguration in February, February 22nd, I think um but later on you know he 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 was you know like Frederick Douglass an autodidact he was self-taught so he just was a voracious reader constantly borrowing uh and when he was a state legislature presumably he had access to books and we know when he was president he had access to the greatest library in the United States the Library of Congress um and so we he actually makes reference prior to Uh, His presidency. So this was probably in his first uh, and only term as a congressman between 1847 and 49 uh, He probably had access to the Library of Congress then He made reference to Madison's notes when those became public. When was that like after 1835 or in the 40s or something like that? He made reference to Eliot's debates at the uh, Constitutional Convention and he um, Read volumes of Jefferson's writings. We know that Uh, and so he had access uh, both as president, likely as congressman, and at other times in his life, he had access to books because that was his greatest interest, um, was, was learning. I mean, good grief. This is a guy, instead of reading the Federalist Papers, and if I have no proof. There is no in- indication that he actually read the Federalist Papers, interestingly oh. enough. Even though there are things that sound like the Federalist Papers, I don't see any proof of it. But here's a guy, when he was congressman, he wasn't reading the Federalist Papers. You know what he was reading? The standard Textbook for geometry, <laughs> Euclid, the first six books of Euclid, Euclid Elements. What is what? What is he doing that as a congressman? He recognized how deficient his education was, and he said, "You know, it's not that I need to know how to bisect, you know, angles and identify uh, um, theorems and, and, and propositions and proofs." He was sharpening his mind in the process, and he thought any uh, any wise and, and smart person uh, had to know geometry. It, it helped him. Uh, to think it was the reason why he did he didn't drink he said it made him feel flabby and he didn't mean in his gut he meant in his mind he knew discovered fairly early on farming even though he could be a good one he had certainly the 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 sinews the muscles for it uh, but he knew um, his mind was the key to his success and his future and anything that he could do to sharpen it uh, he put his uh, he he put his resources to that and so uh, I think in the aggregate, that's how he learned about the founding. Um, he read, you know, the Washington's speeches that anybody could get a hold of, uh, and so these were things that were not too difficult to to access, especially when he traveled so much. Right? He he rode circuit as a lawyer uh, in Illinois, and of, of those who rode circuit, some people have argued he didn't really like being at home. <laughs> and so he stayed on the circuit uh, longer than most shall we say yeah. uh, so this was a guy uh, who was making up for lost time uh, uh reading and so that's how he got that's how he got to the founding okay so uh, no evidence of reading the federalist papers no.
0: uh, we know he read euclid In research for this book or other research you've done on lincoln is there anything else that you've discovered that he's read that uh is surprising or atypical
1: for the time um i don't what's atypical for for lincoln is not so much what he read it's what he didn't read he was not a no, he didn't read novels mm. um uh, the closest thing to novels that he read uh, was shakespeare and of course shakespeare didn't write novels but he wrote plays that read like novels so uh, he was steeped in shakespeare steeped in poetry the poetry of robert burns uh read some byron um and then he read stuff that he needed for his law practice. But in terms of his spare time, his longtime law partner, William Herndon, um, would throw philosophy books at him and Lincoln would read a couple of pages and just didn't take. Uh, Gelso, Alan Gelzo, my good friend, a great historian now at Princeton, said that Lincoln was taken uh, by uh, John Stuart Mill. I have to confess, even though I teach political philosophy, I don't, I don't teach Mill, so I, I'm not as well versed in Mill. Uh, but, but I, I, don't doubt that there's, uh, uh, some democratic principles that he learned from Mill. Uh, but, but, uh, in the way of political theory, his chief treatise or his chief text was the declaration of independence far and away. It's the longest chapter of my book. I was tempted to actually divide it into smaller chapters. Hmm. Uh, but I thought I set it up well enough and, uh, wrote it with, uh, uh, some, some efficiency, shall we say, uh, to at least introduce people to the key ideals and principles and ways of acting as a free people that I think he drew uh, from the declaration, which he quoted, you know, every chance he could get the latter half of the 1850s and, and during his presidency. Lincoln occasionally spoke of the founders and the framers
0: as we do, but typically he spoke of the fathers. Uh, say yes. a word about the significance of that.
1: Yeah, um, even though I call my book Lincoln and the American Founding, um, I, I, I call my book founding because of what it generally represents, not just the ideals and the figures of the period, but the institutions and, and, and kind of habits of the heart, civically, that, w- that our fathers believed we had to uh, both be- uh, think about and practice to make uh, freedom something that you could you know, perpetually protect. Um, But founders was not a word that Lincoln used very often. He used it a few times, uh, but the word, and framers, especially when he was talking about interpreting or construing, uh, legal construction of the constitution. The word he used most often was a word in common locution, uh, a common locution of the day, and that was fathers, our fathers. And as I explained in my book, uh, this wasn't unique to Lincoln. His chief nemesis and rival, Stephen A. Douglas, talked about our revolutionary fathers. He spoke of our fathers. And you can trace this all the way back through most of the presidents prior to Lincoln, including Jefferson, uh, actually, spoke of the fathers, although he meant, you know, our, our pilgrim fathers, those who came across the uh, pond, as it were. Uh, Lincoln spoke of the fathers, uh, which ironically enough uh, for him is, is curious because he did not get along well with his own father. Yeah, right. Uh, um, why did he do this? Uh, I think he was trying to get us to understand how to think about our past, uh, what it was in our past that was worth holding on to, this fealty, this piety that we should have. And what he found uh, curious and um, uh, uh, worthwhile and noble about our, uh, thinking about our connection to the past is you did not have to be literally a blood descendant of the framers or the pilgrims or the Puritans for that matter, on American soil, to count yourself American, that we were, if as it were, a creedal nation. Uh, we were a, a nation not of, of blood and soil, uh, but a nation of principle, a nation of ideals. And Lincoln thought and said famously in July of, two, uh, of uh, 1858, uh, the great year of his debates with Stephen Douglas, that uh, there are a, a good number of people who are related uh, to, to the framers. Lincoln himself, his own family, uh, goes back to the 1700s easily, uh, in um, uh, my now state, the Commonwealth of Virginia. But Lincoln said, then there's this whole host of people who can't trace their way back to the founders by blood. But, oh, if they look to the declaration and that principle of equality, they are, yes. And then he draws from Genesis. They are bone of the bone and flesh of the flesh. And it is the father of all moral principle in them. Uh, and Lincoln says, that's the electric cord that links the hearts of liberty-loving men everywhere. everywhere. And so Lincoln thought, wow, um, we do need to see ourselves, at least politically, as lineal descendants of the Fathers. And of course, he most famously referred to the Fathers in the, that great opening line of the Gettysburg Address.
0: You mentioned Lincoln and Stephen Douglas uh, and the way they sort of competed for the mantle of the of the Fathers. Yes. Uh, and you write that while Lincoln and Douglas disagreed about the Founding Fathers' intention, they, quote, both agreed that the founders should be followed by subsequent generations of Americans." End quote. Um, I don't see that desire to have the founders on your side, let alone get them right uh, in our political debates today. Uh, why was it so important to Douglas and to Lincoln? Why does it seem so unimportant to us today?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. What is it that we have lost today? That now, and in fact, to to get right with the fathers is to is to uh, to see that they were wrong. (laughs) Interestingly enough, um, in Lincoln's day, which is in Douglas's day, um, and I'll get to Alexander Stevens in a second, uh, the vice president of the Confederacy, uh, in their day, there it was more natural for one to be loyal to uh, one's past. It was more natural to see that what you have in the present wasn't something that you did autonomously all by yourself that this these are the things these are the legacy this is the inheritance this is what was bequeathed to you um, usually by 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 family um and so i think part of it is that today we we have um uh, uh depreciated the role that in fact family does play in one's well-being and happiness when government has taken on so and i don't talk about this in the book but i believe that government today and has for decades has taken on so much of the place that things used to be uh, um, uh, responsible for in the past, like one's friends and family, that when government has stepped in to do those sorts of things, we have taken our identity as individuals possessing rights, which is all true. We have taken it to the nth degree to an extent that now, unless you can make it on your own, uh, or if you can't make it on your own, you don't look to family or friends, you look to the government to supply that safety net. And, and as I said, I think we've taken it in extremists. We've taken it to such an extreme that we don't um, think about the obvious. And unfortunately, the obvious, uh, perhaps we don't do it in, in great part because the family is in a shambles today, right? You know, Many marriages end up in divorce. Um, our, our whole understanding of what leads to a healthy, thriving, happy life, these things are under attack and they're under attack because we no longer believe in the things that at least people generally believed in the past, which is that there is human nature, Hmm. that there is a created order. And that means a creator, a God, you throw God and nature out the window and all bets are off. And again, I don't talk about this in my book, but I think it explains why in great measure today, uh, if, if you don't believe that you live in an order that you did not create, if you don't believe in a creator, and if you don't believe in nature that certain things have an essence or are fixed, Uh, uh, in their being, then nature simply becomes a matter to be manipulated. It Mm. becomes simply a question of what we can get at it. And of course, our, our at least much vaunted devotion to science. And I put the scare quotes up because we like science when it favors our political views and we neglect science when it doesn't favor our political views, right? Compare climate change to abortion. Where's the science? Who's talking about science in, in both of those instances, very few people. (laughs) Right. Okay. So uh, to get back to Lincoln and Douglas, Lincoln and Douglas, the great thing about their rivalry is they both agreed that the founders did bequeath something important and essential to how free society can uh, not only be established, but perpetuated. They just disagreed on what that intention was. They disagreed on what those key principles were. Alexander Stevens, as I mentioned earlier, this is a guy who was against secession, but then eventually went with his state, Georgia. He had a fairly... A uh, similar uh, view of the founders that Lincoln did, except for this, their account of the founders and what they attended, intended was the same, but their response to it was diametrically opposed. Lincoln said, this is what the founders believed about equality, about individual rights, about consent of the governed, and I agree with it and let's hold on to these things. Alexander Stevens agreed with all of that except to say that the founders were wrong. They were wrong because of uh, we all know now uh, that whites are the supreme race. And, and well, we all, don't all know that, but the Confederacy does, and people will figure it out in the same way they followed Galileo eventually, in the same way they followed uh, whoever it was that discovered the circulation of the blood and all that kind of junk, that, that you know, these Confederates actually thought that they were um, kind of political Galileos, that they were venturing forth Uh, in a way that soon people would recognize as true. They didn't invent slavery. They discovered that it was racial slavery in their mind that was the key to a thriving, prosperous, civilized society. And uh, the founders were just flat out wrong. They built on sand and the cornerstone of the Confederacy, of course, is white supremacy. Uh, And so ironically enough, uh, with Stevens, you have a, a pretty identical understanding of the founding with Lincoln, He just disagreed with the fathers, thought that the Confederacy rightfully broke away from that understanding, especially of uh, equal humanity. And Lincoln, of course, believed the opposite. Hmm.
0: Uh, There's a common refrain uh, about Lincoln uh, that says he corrected a flaw in the American founding, uh, that through the 13th Amendment, he gave us not only a new birth of freedom, as he promised, but a new nation, too. Um, You reject that view. Uh, You write in the first chapter that the Civil War, quote, produced a new birth of freedom, but did not supplant the original freedom conceived by the fathers, end quote. Uh, Say a word about that.
1: Yeah, it's it's essentially a gloss on Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, uh, which is what you're quoting from. Um, Lincoln didn't give us a birth of new freedoms, it was a new birth of freedom, the Mm -hmm. same freedom that the fathers believed everyone was entitled to, but they, uh, debatable point, but they believed they could not secure for everyone at the same time, immediately, as I put it to my students, they uh, during the American Revolution did not believe they could free themselves, and I would say attempt to free themselves. Serious Monday morning quarterbacking, where we oh, we just think, oh well, Washington's at the head, of course they're going to win. No, yeah. well the betting the betting money at Vegas at the time, haha, <laughs> was that we were going to lose. Right. It would be a worthy fight, right? No, no, the fathers thought that they could not free themselves and free their slaves at the same time, uh, and so that the the half a loaf was better than nothing. Uh, they tolerated, oh, Senator Cotton's getting in trouble these days because he clumsily was talking about slavery as a necessary evil. Uh, but Lincoln believed a version of that. He believed that it was definitely evil, but it had to be tolerated and uh, that necessity compelled them to tolerate it for a while. And, but they, they established structures that they believed in time could, um, could eradicate slavery, right? As he put it, put it on the course of ultimate extinction. Right. Um, so uh, yeah, um, I've, lost, I've lost I've lost the thread here of the uh, of the question. Can you can you fish me back in here?
0: Sure. Well, so, so it's just fair to say that uh, what Lincoln did was he finished the work oh, that yeah,. The yeah,
1: yeah. had so, begun. So, yeah. So what he what he was arguing in 270 words in the Gettysburg Address was essentially that now. I mean, remember that address takes place in November of 63. It's the oh, year of Jubilee. Emancipation mm-hmm. Proclamation was issued on January 1st of that year. So Lincoln is now living and the nation is living at a time where once the war is over and presumably the union is preserved, you will add three to four million black people uh, who were formerly enslaved. Uh, This, of course, is capped off with the 13th Amendment. And so what the 13th Amendment does is finish finish what Lincoln started with the Emancipation Proclamation, which is we are now fulfilling the promise of the fathers. When they said all men are created equal, they meant all. Stephen Douglas says, no, they only meant all white people. Right. So there you go. Both um, are, are loyal to the founders. They just have a radically different interpretation of the founders. And so Lincoln was arguing that with a successful war effort, now that most of the enslaved have been freed by, um, uh, at least by government order, uh, needs to be backed up by bullets and bayonets now, uh, have been freed uh, um Uh, as a result of the war, as a means to preserving union, when this union is over, when this war is over, what are we going to be? A truly government of the people, by the people, for the people. And those people are now a multiracial, a biracial country, black and white. And so all we're doing is we didn't just discover that blacks had rights. Um, According to our own fathers, they believed all human beings possessed rights by nature, the endowment of their creator, not their government. What government exists to do is protect what you already possess as a human being. Um, and so Lincoln is saying, yeah, now we're going to be fully consistent with the father's intention. And he, he boiled it down in this wonderful sentence in a note to himself, uh, what I call his political golden rule. As I would not be a slave, so I, sh- uh, so I would not be a master. This expresses my definition of democracy. Uh, and he knew and he, he said that the fathers departed from that ideal because necessity compelled them. But the point is, for, for him at least, the Constitution did not have to be amended for us to do right by the fathers, but it ultimately needed to be amended to make sure that the gains of the Civil War would not be lost. And that's why he thought that the 13th Amendment was a king's cure uh, for all the evils. Right.
0: Uh, let, let's turn to laws. Beginning with his seminal Lyceum address uh, sure. in 1838, Lincoln spoke often about the importance that the men and women of this country share a reverence for the laws. Uh, You remind us in the book that Lincoln said people ought to religiously observe even bad laws. Uh, He seems at odds here with another cherished American of our past, Martin Luther King Jr. who in his letter from a Birmingham jail, as you know, channeled St. Augustine writing, an unjust law is no law at all. And one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Uh, there seems to be a tension there between our two treasures.
1: Yeah, it's not a seems or apparent. It is a clear tension between Lincoln and um, King. And a King, King, of course, uh, almost always, I don't remember him. He may have been critical uh, of Lincoln here or there, but almost always in public, he, he expressed great loyalty, not just to Lincoln, but to Jefferson. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, remember in the I Have a Dream speech uh, um, which came later in August of 63, the Birmingham jail was April of 63. And uh, I Have a Dream speech, Lincoln says that, uh, that his dream is deeply rooted in the American dream. And he called it you know, the, 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 the ideals of the declaration and the constitution uh, he, he understood as a creed, okay? Uh, I think it's a great debate to set up for students is to have them read that portion of the letter from Birmingham jail of King and juxtapose it with Lincoln's, that paragraph in the Lyceum address, which Lincoln wrote uh, delivered in uh, January of 1838. Um, Lincoln, I, mean, I'll, I'll, I need to add, hasten to add something to what you said, that, that Lincoln thinks that even bad laws need to be religiously obeyed. Ha- we have to add, while you try to get them changed. Yeah, <laughs> it's not sure. Like Lincoln yeah. says, we are robots, we just obey. Because then <laughs> men serve the law rather than laws serving men. So right. ultimately, of course, justice has to be secured by the laws. And if the laws don't do that, you change the law. But until the law is changed and you do so in a peaceful, which is to say a political manner, right, by 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 informing your congressman or your legislator. And if they don't change their minds, you change them. That's the American way. That's the owned and operated way uh, of a free people. uh, Lincoln would disagree with King um, when when King says that that an unjust law is no law at all. Well, that's that's he's over he's grossly exaggerating it. Uh, surely King has to acknowledge that prudence has to be at play here. That you can't just let every American citizen decide for him or herself which laws are just and which ones aren't. And and and, and we don't have to wait for the political process. That is to say, for consent in an informed way, not a passionate way. Uh, government by me- megaphone, as we see today, government by the bullying of mobs, um, surely King must con- concede that, uh, that ultimately for Blacks themselves to be secure in their rights, they will need to find that security in the rule of laws, which is the product of the consent, which means the persuasion of the community. Short of that, and he acknowledged this in the letter from Birmingham jail, he said, I know that the greatest criticism of my position is uh, from those who say, well, look, you're going to set an example for people not to obey. Haven't we already seen that, right? Back in 1954, when the Brown v. Board of Education decision came down, a unanimous opinion of the Supreme Court yeah. that says you can't racially segregate K-12 schools. Well, what did you find in Virginia and Little Rock, Arkansas? You found massive resistance. Mm-hmm. And, and, and King recognizes, look, I can't be disobeying in a way and say it's okay, but you guys are disobeying, disobeying in a way that's wrong. Uh, the product of that debate has to find its result in a deliberative uh, political process. Uh, and King says, I mean, after I say that, that great difference, King says um, he gives one little out in, in uh, the Lyceum Address uh, to acknowledge that there may be certain occasions where, you know, it, if not too intolerable, he, he, as he puts it, I want to get it right because this is important, um, that he does acknowledge there might be occasions where you might not follow. So he says this, uh, I do mean to say that although bad laws, if they exist, should be repealed as soon as possible, while they continue in force for the sake of example, they should be religiously observed. He says, if such arise, let proper legal provisions be made for them with the least possible delay, but till then let them, if not too intolerable yeah, to be born with. That is the <laughs> yes, one <that's> place right. <laughs> in that entire speech where he says, Need a crack in the door. Um, and King, of course, would say, he would drive a truck through that. He would yeah. say, blacks in the South have found these laws, these court decisions as, as, as just intolerable, and yeah. we're going to call the community's attention uh, to this. Now, unfortunately, what militates against King's position as well, and I, and I teach this stuff, Um, is that Blacks were allowed to vote in Birmingham at that time. Mm -hmm. There was about 8,000 of them, if they voted as a block, and I see fairly strong reasons why, at least in certain issues, they would vote as a block, um, they could have been the tipping point uh, to shift the government, the municipality, away from um, Eugene Bull Connor, who was the Commissioner of Public Safety, but then, I think, running for mayor, um, uh, to Boutwell, who was, if you will, a moderate segregationist. So... There was a political process, and in fact, folks like the New York Times and other well-meaning liberals were telling King, look, your timing here is awful. Uh, Focus your efforts on the the vote, use the political process, and you'll get more um, uh, uh, productive outcome that way. And King ultimately decided, no, we're going to go ahead with this Easter weekend boycott.
0: Yeah. Let's talk now about the highest court and the highest law, uh, the Constitution. Um, Lincoln quoted Andrew Jackson and, and you cite this in your book, who said, quote "The Congress, the executive, and the Court must each for itself be guided by its own opinion of the Constitution. Each public officer who takes an oath to support the Constitution swears that he will support it as he understands it and not as it is understood by others, or, I think more colorfully, Chief Justice Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. Right. Uh, but walk us through Lincoln's thinking on this issue uh, and where and maybe which founders might have influenced him on this score.
1: Yeah, and this one, I don't, I don't say that he, um, uh, it, it, I don't find a direct correlation or uh, a direct path from a Jefferson, a Washington, a Hamilton, or a Madison to Lincoln's view as he expressed it in 1857. That's from a speech where he's criticizing the Dred Scott opinion. Right. Uh, and he's quoting the Democrat of Democrats, King Jackson. Right? Remember, Lincoln was a Whig before he was a Republican. If, it, yeah. if, if there was any reason for Whigs to exist, it was animosity towards Andrew Jackson. Uh, but King, I mean, he'll take his support where he can find it. And, and of course, he's, he's artful in doing so in 1857 because he wants uh, Democrats to become Republicans yeah. uh, in 1857. He wants them to see that There's this element of what you believe, this hero, uh, and he was Douglas's hero, Stephen Douglas's hero. There is this understanding of the Constitution that we need to maintain. Uh, And so even though he quotes directly Jackson, I think we can, in a way, trace it back to the founding belief that um, the government doesn't belong to the governors, it belongs to the governed. Hmm. And what he is most consistent in doing, not only in 1857, but in his inaugural speech of 1860, where he returns to the argument. Uh, of uh, how are we to understand the constitution, especially in light of a court case that we don't agree with. Dred Scott is still good law in yeah. the 1860s when Lincoln is president. Taney's on the bench until October of 64 when he dies. So, and Lincoln knows this when he issues the Emancipation Proclamation. He right. thinks uh, uh, it could get tossed out in, a, in the highest court of the land. Um, <clears throat> so what is Lincoln doing? The fundamental thing Lincoln says is that the constitution belongs to the American people. He takes seriously the we the people opening of the preamble and what 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 is he doing with that he is reminding the american people that every branch of government represents them as a part of a you know due political constitutional process and so if their representatives in congress disagree with their representatives as a president or in this case the supreme court they have every right to use leverage those constitutional branches of government to achieve justice as they see it. And so if a Supreme Court comes up with a decision, remember, Dred Scott was, it wasn't unanimous, but it wasn't simply a split decision it was seven to two, only yes. two dissenters. Um, if the American people believe that their court made a mistake, whether deliberate or inadvertent, they have every right politically. Lincoln wasn't revolutionary in this sense. He wasn't trying to overthrow the government. The Republicans weren't, even though Stephen Douglas suggested they were. Right. They have every right to use the other political channels to get the court to change their mind and so in that instance if it what lincoln says if i'm elected to the senate this is 1858 and a bill comes across my desk uh, uh, needing a vote to ban slavery in the territories which justice Taney already said congress doesn't have that authority to do he said i would i would vote for it hmm. okay he doesn't get that chance because he's never appointed senator but he does when he's president when he's president in April, he signs a law banning slavery in the District of Columbia, and then in June, June nineteenth of eighteen sixty-two, he passes a law. Passed, uh, he signs a law passed by Congress, which bans slavery in all the federal territories. Dred Scott is still on the books. Yeah. So here you have a president working in concert with the national legislature, the Congress defying a supreme court decision and saying we just flat out disagree with you court you don't get to tell us how to do our jobs what's constitutional in our exercise of authority and of course this was this would have been in peacetime um, a constitutional conflict if not crisis and it would have invited a another court case that would deal with the matter and lincoln would be in a, in a more difficult position if the court Rehearing a similar case with regards to whether I have a right to take a slave to a territory or not, the court, if it ruled the same way it ruled in Dredd, leaning on Dredd Scott as precedent, it would be difficult for Lincoln to say, well, this is not settled law. No, (laughs) at that point, what the court says goes. Uh, And so the the fundamental thing I want people to understand is that Lincoln, what Lincoln learned from the founding, is the Constitution is the people's Constitution, not their rulers. In terms of how the department should understand their own. Um, exercise of authority, Jackson's point of view. Lincoln certainly sided with Jackson here over Jefferson. Jefferson changed his mind multiple times in terms of who gets the last say on, on construing the Constitution. Wow. Um, and so in that regard, Lincoln didn't reach all the way back to the founding. He reached back, uh, if you will, he reached across the aisle to <laughs> Jackson That's to right. try to see that Democrats and Republicans alike should understand uh, the enormity, how grossly wrong the Supreme Court decision in Dred Scott B. Sand Uh, Sanford was, and what the proper peaceful, which is to say, political way to get your rulers, again, to change their minds, or you need to change them. Yeah.
0: Uh, We have time for one more question. Um, And I want to ask this. I don't think it's an exaggeration uh, to say that America herself is under attack today. Uh, We see statues of Washington, Lincoln, Grant, even Frederick Douglass being defaced (laughs) and torn down. Uh, We see the New York Times 1619 project, which claims America's founding ideals were false when they were written, being taught to children in schools across the nation. I could go on and we could spend an entire episode on these attacks on America and her founding principles. Um, You call Lincoln America's greatest defender. Yes. In closing, can you tell us what you mean by that and tell us what we might learn from Lincoln about how we might defend America from those who'd seek to tear her down?
1: yeah i would say this that it's no coincidence that in attacking the founding they have to attack lincoln uh it's not a coincidence um it is deliberate and it at least is coherent internally in other words if you don't like the founders of course you're not going to like lincoln regardless of what he so-called did they would say in terms of freeing the slaves he's not the great emancipator in their minds um, so they have to take down Lincoln as the 1619 Project tried to do. They actually tried to identify Lincoln with the same opinion of Justice Taney. I mean, imagine that. Did they even read <laughs> Scott's opinion speech? I mean, this is just laughable. Yeah. I mean, it would be, uh, yeah, you got to laugh to keep from crying. It was so bad. Um, so, um, because Lincoln, as I, I think I spell out in my book in, 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 in great but concise detail, uh, was so beholden to what he learned from the founding, those things he thought were worth, worth holding on to. Some things weren't worth holding on to, like slavery. Um, it's not a surprise that they're trying to take down Lincoln. Uh, what I think people will learn from my book, and especially if it turns them to read more about Lincoln, just go to the source. Don't read a biography, read Lincoln. Yeah. What they will learn is, I believe, not only a correct account of what the founders believed and did, both in principle and in terms of structures and ways of, of governing oneself, they will not only have a correct account of the founding, they, I believe, will learn to appreciate and value what the founders achieved. So it's one thing to understand the founding, right? Alexander Stevens understood them, yeah. and he rejected it. I think in my book, in, in, a, in, a, in a careful reading of Lincoln, and fairly commonsensical and plain reading of Lincoln will teach people um, what are the requirements uh, for the perpetuation of self-government. As Lincoln put it himself, and let's see him address, Washington and his generation proved you can establish a free society. What remained to be proved was, can you perpetuate the thing? It is not, democracy isn't a, perpetuation, a perpetual motion machine. It requires each generation to understand what that machine is and what it takes for them to operate that machine at full capacity, if you will, to its best effect. And I believe what has happened today is we have lost sight of a proper understanding of America. And in losing that, uh, the greatest need right now is to reclaim it, is to reclaim uh, both what those ideals are and how we need to see each other and understand one another. Uh, Right now, all that you hear about is what divides us. Yeah, And yeah, by definition, if that's all you hear about, no wonder we're polarized, no wonder we're falling apart, no wonder we're seeing anarchy in the streets. Um, What we need is to learn to speak, which is to say, to think like Lincoln. And in so doing, we will be reclaiming our understanding of our shared, our common humanity, and therefore look to government, our common government, as a way to promote the common good. Uh, Notice, I guess this will be my last point, notice when we lose sight of what we have in common. No wonder everything becomes political. No wonder everything matters to be in the majority. Because if you're not in the majority, woe be to you. And if that mindset comes over and takes hold of uh, more and more Americans, then we will not have had to amend our constitution one one way. We wouldn't have to move a comma to become a different kind of country. We will have become what Stephen Douglas wanted it to become, crude majoritarianism. As long as you're white, in his mind, right? It was this country was founded on the white basis. Lincoln rejected that. So if we just become a crudely majoritarian, politically minded people, yeah, then it makes total sense. You don't want to be in the majority, in the minority, because then your rights will be overrun and you will be ruled at, at, at it be at your expense for the benefit of the majority. We need to speak the language of rights. We need to speak the language of rights that are your endowment by nature, and if nature is God. We need to speak the language of consent and recover um, a due respect for the rule of law and the deliberative process that puts passion as best as we can to the curb and put our minds, which will lead to disagreement to be sure, but put our minds to the task before we make political decisions. Uh, If we don't do that, diversity, sorry, will not be a strength for us. It will be yet another source of division, conflict, and no surprise, it will lead to chaos.
0: The book is Lincoln and the American Founding. It's a tremendous book. It's a great introduction to Lincoln and by extension, a great introduction to the American Founding. I cannot recommend it uh, highly enough. Uh, Lucas Morrell, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it, Lucas Morrell, one of our many wonderful James Madison Society members telling us all about Lincoln and the American Founding. I'll go ahead and put a link to the book in the show notes I encourage you to order it, read it, study it. I promise you won't regret it. That'll do it for us today. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes.